This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Thank you for coming. I said to, uh, to Dr. Wall on the way over that I don't know about your campus, but my campus is kind of all attended out right now. Did you all have, have days off because of the weather this, this, time, this year? Yeah, not as many, not as, many as we did. It just seems like in the winter's been kind of long and everybody's kind of overwhelmed. So I really appreciate you being here. And I really hate it when someone says, I'm sure you'll enjoy the talk. Yeah, we'll see, right? <laughs> um, so let's see. So it's a really important topic. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. This is such a beautiful campus and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be here today. Um, it's a complicated topic, right? I don't know about you, but when I look at the word financial market or financial system, the first thing I think about is it's complicated. And then secondly, does that mean I have to understand it? Thirdly, I have to think morally about it or even religiously about it. It, it feels a little overwhelming. But we'll do our best today with the help of some other good scholars to try to walk through this in a way that, um, that should be, that I hope will be clear because I can't understand any of this unless it's clear to me. You know, Albert Einstein once said, uh, um, everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. And I think that's for all of us in any area that we're in, that's always a challenge, especially as teachers and students to say, how do I understand it correctly, not overly complicatedly, but also accurately? Um, okay, so, whoops. Uh, so we have this thing, this system, you know, called capitalism or called the free market system that um, we, we pretty much take for granted in our country and even in our world today, the free enterprise system. And I like this picture because it depicts it as sort of an institution, right? Private enterprise, comp competition, private property, profit motive, consumer sovereignty. Those are things if you take Econ 101. How, anybody here in, in here in business or Econ? Okay, oh good, okay, so you can, you can help me. Um, you learn these things, right? But in reality, it's this very dynamic, uh, complex, fast-moving, um, multi-layered reality in our world today, and particularly when we talk about financial sector or finance markets, right? Everything's in motion, it seems like, all the time. And so we'll focus today, as this, as this series has focused on financial systems, right? And again, anybody in, the, in this area knows this, but for me, it's good to remind myself that it's institutional units and markets that interact, I like this, typically in a complex manner, for the purpose of mobilizing funds for investment and providing facilities, including payment systems for the financing of commercial activity. The bolded part there is what good do these systems do? In other words, what are they for? And this is a huge social benefit to mobilize funds for investment and provide facilities and payment systems such as banks and credit and so forth for the, financial, for the financing of commercial activity. Financial markets would be a subset of the financial system Markets in which entities, groups, corporations, etc., can trade financial claims under some established rules of conduct and facilitate managing and transforming risk, which is another important thing that financial markets do. And as you know, if you're in this area, there are very various types of markets, money, bond, equity, derivatives, and so forth. 
Now that's distinguished from, in economics, what sometimes is called the real economy, which again I find an interesting choice of terms because it's certainly not like the other one is fake or not real, right? But the reasoning is interesting. It's the part of the economy that's connected with actually producing goods and services as opposed to the part of, part of the economy that is concerned with buying and selling on the financial markets. So these would be corporations that make things or that provide specific services um, and, and so forth, as aside from banks and um, investment um, institutions and so forth. Now, on a good day, the real economy and the financial sector work together to contribute to well-being, um, to economic well-being for a whole lot of people. And that's the value that people put into this, this sort of system. I say on a good day because it isn't always as inclusive as we would like it to be, and the well-being is not always spread out in the way that we would like it to be. But this is the, re the idea here. One of the things that's important to notice as we start to talk about what makes a good financial system is the growth and the increasing influence of the financial sector over the last 50 to 60 years. Um, you'll notice it says 8.4% of the financial sector's share of the GDP. That doesn't sound like very much, but it's really in the trillions and it's been growing. And so spending money or trading money to make money on this uh, non embodied level on a certain level has become more and more part of what runs or influences how the economy overall works. Um, there's a, there's a um, person at Harvard Business School, uh, actually a political scientist by the name of Makunda, who had a very important article about this in 2014, and here he talks about the bank's assets, the big bank's assets in relation to GDP, because the banks are part of the financial system. In 1995, the assets of the six largest US banks were equivalent to 17% of US GDP. By 2013, it was 58% which he estimates involves government subsidies for reasons we won't go into here up to about that valued up to about seven billion dollars including accruing to the eight largest banks in the US. So this is we're talking about very big money that's more and more part of um, that's, that's more and more offsetting the rest of our GDP in terms of its size and its influence. So then how do we assess what makes a financial market or system good? That's that's the question we want to think about today. And I want to argue that underlying that question, we have to ask a prior question, which is what or who is an economy for? What is an economy for? And I have two, two words up here, two images that suggest the two different models that I think are intention as we look at what's going on in our markets today, and especially as we start to talk ethically and morally about what ought to be going on in our markets today. One image that says, uh, on the one hand, um, the market is for um, profit, for money, for making money, and so forth. On the other hand, the mar market is for providing. Um, just to lay it out in terms of a chart a little bit, the two models I have in mind are two different ways of looking at the purpose and two different ways of understanding who the economic actor is, of thinking who the person in the economy is. So on the one hand, and again, there are, there's nobody who walks around as a pure type of this. They're all, it's always ambiguous, but these are trends or emphases, let's put it that way, okay? On the one hand, the standard um, uh, mainstream economics uh, viewpoint would, would tend to be on the left side of the, of the screen. 
And I have a quote from Milton Friedman, who's a very famous Chicago school economist, and this quote is very famous. There is one and only one responsibility of business to use its resources and engage in activities to increase its profits. That's been quoted zillions of times, and that's a good pure type of, well, this is one way of looking at what's supposed to be doing in business. You're supposed to make profits and continually make more profits. You don't, it's not good enough to make the same profit as last year. You need to make more profits. The underlying understanding of the person here, which is modeled in economics, is often called homo economicus, the economic man. And the idea here is you're an individual, you have unlimited wants, and you try to maximize your self-interest um, as you go about your individual competitive activity in the marketplace. Has anybody who's taken economics heard about this homo economicus idea? Yeah, okay, so it's not completely new. And it's an image. They're not really claiming that everybody's exactly like that in real life, but it's a way of thinking about how people are gonna behave in market situations. Um, on the other side, there's another way of looking at economy that focuses on people and provisioning, and this has actually been the dominant understanding of, e of economy prior to the modern period. All the way up to the time of Adam Smith in the 18th century and thereafter, um, into the 19th century, when people said economy, they thought more in terms of a set of relationships where buying and selling and markets took place, but the purpose of which was to provide material sustenance for the members. Not to make profit, but to provide for the members. And so the underlying idea there, and this is not a term you'll hear much, I'm using it here, is more of an idea of homo solidaritas. In other words, a connected person, not an atomistic, self-interest maximizing individual who's basically purely selfish, it's all about me and my preferences, right? Um, but someone who's interdependent with others and who is working to provide for her or him, himself as well as other people. So it's a much more collaborative, even though the market and competition was in there, it was embedded in this larger collaborative provisioning viewpoint. The very word economy suggests this older, longer view. Oikonomia means household, the management of a household. And so the earliest economies were households. And what did you care about in your economic household? Well, you wanted to take care of everybody. You wanted to make sure everybody had enough. So that word enough becomes important. So it seems in reality, though, a good financial system has to blend concern with profits which do produce, produce social benefits, right? All that stuff on the left side has a lot of social benefits and concern for people's well-being, particularly the idea of inclusion, like do you actually sustain everybody? But how does this actually happen? We've seen, um, and this is the series focus as well, a case where there was a massive recent failure of blending these two things together in the 2009-709 financial crisis. And one of the questions that is still being bandied about and I can't wait to see the papers that come out of your series because I would have, as I think I even asked you, can I get them so I can study as I, I write this? You know, who or what is responsible? Is it bad apples, individuals in the system who weren't doing their job? Is it bad barrels? In other words, another way of putting, you know, somehow the system was set up wrong, the, the regulations were wrong, and so forth. Or maybe is it bad cores? And by that I mean, um, is there something about the way the whole thing works, not just the rules and the laws, or something about the whole culture of finance that, that was partly to blame. And there's been huge amounts of discussion about that. Whoops, I'm going backwards, that's not right. Let's see if I can go forwards. Okay, so I wanna talk first about some perspectives from business ethics. Um, I imagine those of you in, in econ or business, in particular, do you have to take a business ethics class here? No? Oh my goodness, you'll have to do something about that. 
Oh, an ethics course, but not necessarily a business. Oh, okay, you should take an ethics course. Okay, well, that's all right then. Being an ethicist, of course, I immediately get upset when I hear people are taking ethics. So we'll start with some people from business ethics, and I put the names of a few of the people I'm drawing on here as I speak for the next few minutes. And then we'll turn to see what, if anything, Catholic social thought might add to, or even in certain ways challenge, about how a business ethicist would go about talking about this. So first there's this guy from um, California Polytechnical Institute, a business ethicist, called John Dobson, who writes this book, actually right around 2000, called Finance Ethics. And he, in a certain way, was waving the red flag and saying, you know what's going on in the financial sector? There's some problems here, his argument was, um, with the way people are being trained and with the way it's being practiced. And he was worried about what he called the finance paradigm and the influence of that on the financial sector. You can tell from my picture kind of where, where he thought this finance paradigm was going. huh? You're there to make piles of money, and it's really a, that's really what you're there for, and you're there to get as big as you can, and if there's a littler guy, you should eat that guy up, right? And so that's a caricature of something that he felt was really permeating the air of the finance world. And this was as early as the late 90s. Um, and so this was after the deregulation that took place in the 90s, the, the, the uh, repeal of Glass-Steagall so that the commercial banks and the investment banks could work together. And another number of other deregulations had taken place. Secondly, it's the time with the rise of the derivative market, those of you who have taken business and economics, where you have a whole new way of trading and betting and it's largely, largely non-regulated. So there's a lot going on besides just what's going, what would have happened within the rules prior to that. Um, here's what Dobson says. He says, within finance economics, this paradigm, and you know the idea of a paradigm, it's like the way we understand the whole picture, right? It's kind of the way, it's the model we use to understand the, the situation, right? He, Dobson says, self-interest has come to be defined in a very narrow and very specific terms. Individuals always prefer more wealth to less, that's just a given, and they act with, if necessary, guile and deceit. Now that's kind of like, you know, that's kind of bad. Like if I, I always want more, and I, if I have to, to cheat and lie to get it, I'm gonna do it. Um, Self-interest is narrowly defined as the opportunistic pursuit of material wealth to the exclusion of all other motivations. Parentheses, I actually think one reason he may be right is the way, it is the fact that, is because of the fact that finance occurs on such an abstract level. And so it, be, it can be seen as a game much more easily than if you're selling groceries to me in the store. That's not so obviously just a game where I can just cheat you. But this is way at such an arcane and complex level away from the daily lives of people that it can be seen and is seen as a game. And so if you think about playing a game like Risk or Monopoly, you know, there are games in which you just expect the other person to, to deceive you and to use guile, right? And so part of the question is, what is fair play in an economy? Should I just expect that you're gonna take advantage of me if you can, and you'll expect the same? And he's saying that's kind of how it was getting to be in the finance world, what people kind of expected. And notice this notion of never enough. You always want more, I always want more. It's, it's an assumption, okay? What I have now is never enough. And he says this dominant paradigm assumes self-interested opportunism and maximization of wealth on the part of every agent. No one's gonna stop. And if you do stop, then you're just sort of a loser, right? Sometimes they say, oh, he's a family man. He cares more about his family than continually moving up the ladder of Wall Street or wherever. He argues this is highly influential in the teaching and practice of finance today with wide ripple effects. Not saying it so bluntly as I'm saying it here, 
but more just kind of as a background assumption. Like it'd be stupid not to want more wealth. Of course you're always gonna to wanna to go for more wealth. So something like the, the sort of the air you're breathing. There's another, uh, another writer, the guy from Harvard Business School, Makunda, who brings up, whoops, who brings up another issue about the financial sector. And he's worried about the dangers of the undue power of the financial sector and its increased profits prime directive. So the prime directive of the financial sector to any corporation is increase your profits, increase your price per share. Um, do, you, do you make a better product to do that? We don't really care. Do you, t do you treat people well to do We don't care increase your price per share. So the more influence the financial side has on an individual corporation, um, the more they, can care, they have to care less about the real economy and more about uh, fulfilling this increased share price. The three companies I have up here, uh, Mukunda studies all of them and brings out specific examples of how IBM, Sara Lee, and Boeing um, case studies about how they had to, for example, Boeing be began to outsource a lot of its um, plane uh, manufacture because it was cheaper and that allowed them to increase the share of their, of their um, uh, the, the, the assets that they had uh, on the financial side. But it wasn't good for the planes. And so there's a, a number of examples like that. I don't think Sara Lee's outsourcing their cake, but, I, but nonetheless, all of these companies are, are studied under this. He says that when you do this, when you have too much power on the financial side, and he argues that um, right now it has too much power, uh, it increases volatility, inhibits growth, and misallocates resources such as talent and capital away from wealth creation and toward wealth distribution. Um, you're spreading the money around. You're using the money to make more money rather than creating something new. It distorts thinking, and there's that same idea of the finance paradigm. Now, Barbara Porso is my colleague at Gabelli School of Business at Fordham, and she is a highly respected business ethics teacher, and she actually does training for the financial analysts on, on, on Wall Street on a regular basis for the major um, association of professional accountants. So she was nice, to, nice enough to, send, to help me learn some of this. And so I'll just refer to some of the things she emphasizes in her work. She also says, well, in business ethics, there are two different views that compete. One, the purpose of business is to make money. This looks just like that chart we had earlier, right? More profit. The other one, it's something that you may have heard of called the triple bottom line. The business is for profits, but it's also for people, and it's also for the planet. You have to take all those three things together. Um, we're responsible to stakeholders, employees, customers, vendors, and so forth and so on. So on the right side, you have a more humanistic understanding of business, but keep in mind that if um, Mukunda is right, um, the influence of the financial sector on business can actually pull people away from acting, to, acting on those concerns for the community or for their employees or their customers. So one of the things you do to, to increase market share is you cut your workforce, for example. If it always has to be on the left side, profit has to go up, 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 up. Another thing that business ethicists like Porso will emphasize, it, it, there are professions for financial accountants, for example. And to think of yourself as a professional is to actually think of yourself as serving the community. It's not simply, I'm gonna get as much as I can out of what I do. The essence of being a professional is a sense of moral authority, which places the well-being of those we are asked or expected to serve above our own well-being. You probably know um, that there were huge lapses in the responsibility of brokers to their customers in the run-up to the financial crisis. Uh, they were 
distracted into paying more attention to the money that their companies were making versus were they taking care of the security and the interests of the people um, that they really were supposed to be caring about. So to think of yourself as a professional that serves some people is an important way to frame things that's not the finance paradigm. She says that poor regulations, company culture, and group dynamics can foster a milieu where corporate pract corrupt practices tolerated, encouraged, or seen as expected. Uh, there's so much interesting research out there, one uh, looking at the crisis, saying one has to do with social silences, you know, where everybody thinks something's kind of goofy, but no one's going to say it because the guy in charge hasn't said it. We've all been in situations like that. You know, well, she isn't saying anything's wrong. I kind of think something's wrong, but I don't want to be the one to stick my neck out. Um, actual experiences of younger people coming out of business schools like Fordham or other places that really emphasize Marquette, that really emphasize uh, values, you know, getting into these jobs and speaking up at a, a meeting or two and saying, well, what about the ethics issues and having everyone just sort of look at them, you know, cross-eyed and say, okay, I'm not going to talk about that anymore, you know. So there's a lot of uh, pressure in the group about how you behave here. Um, the Lucifer effect is also interesting. She talks about the idea that um, when you're in a group situation, you will sometimes behave much more negatively or even evilly, is what she's saying, um, than you ever would as an individual because of the pressure or the or sort of the tone that the group can take. So these can all have an impact on what goes on when people are working um, in this in this rarefied atmosphere. One example that's been around a long time is the, oops, excuse me, is the fraud triangle. I won't, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but you can see the idea that you, what is going to cause you to do something wrong or unethical in business? Pressures, incentives, opportunities, and then, you know, our tendency to rationalize, well, it's really not that bad and so forth. And so she goes through um, the different situations in the job that can make it easy for people to want to do something bad. And part of the, part of the job of the business um, manager or the business owner is to say, how do we not make it so easy? The, um, uh, oop, what was I going to say about that? Oh, it's like leaving your, your um, purse on your car seat, you know, and uh, speaking, using a women's metaphor and not locking the car. You know, somebody might steal it, well, you're kind of making it too easy. And same thing as issue, you have to have rules, you have to have oversight and so forth to make it less easy because we are fallible. We are human beings that are tempted. Incentives and pressures also uh, play a role in pushing people to be unethical. There's a pressure to deliver. You might have financial need, group pressure, or you just might be greedy. You know, it's really hard to say no to having more. It's really hard to say no. So many people in the aftermath of the crisis said, we knew that if we over here at Bear Stearns didn't make these shady deals, people over there at Morgan Stanley were going to do it, and they were going to get all that money. And even if the whole thing went to hell, we didn't want to miss the bandwagon. Right? And so even though we all knew it, these, these were crappy loans and they were going to fall apart, it was like, we're all going to run as fast as we can until the whole thing falls apart because otherwise you're going to get more than me. And so there's a lot of interesting group dynamics here. And then the rationalization stuff, right? Everybody else is doing it and so forth. So the summary here is to ensure ethical practice in business and finance, regulations are needed, but the rules are not enough. This is Alan Greenspan. Most of you know who he is. Uh, this is in the hearings after the crisis. Rules cannot substitute for character. At the same time, you can't have character and no rules. You, know, you need both of those things and maybe even more. 
Porso's program with these accountants and managers uh, focuses on this notion of integrity as a core value for financial professionals. Um, and it's something that calls, you can think of, you can figure out what that means, huh? Um, it's an element of character. It's something that makes you a respected professional. It's what gives you the trust. And this is the key word, right? What broke down during the financial crisis? Trust. Um, on the bottom here, I put this quote because I was at lunch yesterday with a Wall Street veteran who's now uh, works, helps us at Fordham with various things. He's an alum. And I said to him, tomorrow I'm going to Villanova and I'm gonna speak about finance. What would you say? He was on Wall Street for years and years and did incredibly well. Um, grew up in the Bronx. And I said to him, um, what would you say makes a good financial uh, system? And he says, oh, that's very easy. Very, very easy, very, very easy answer. The e answer is, and he said it in Latin, um, I think it's dictum meum pactum, something like that. Um, my word is my bond. He says, that's all you need to know. You need to be able to trust the guy making the deal with you, and he needs to be able to trust, of course, this is all men that he's talking about, the, the guy making the deal with me. And if you can't do that, the whole thing is, you might as well just give up and go home. And he went on to say, remember, he said, I'm Italian from the Bronx. And he says, you know, I don't forget if somebody screws me on a deal. And I said to him, well, yeah, that's nice, but what about like all this high-speed trading that's going on, you know, way, way above the me and you level? And then he said, well, then you gotta follow the rules. So it was very interesting to hear somebody who, and he said, if you don't, you'll get away for, with it for a while, but you eventually it'll catch up with you. Now, I would love to speak to a younger generation person on Wall Street to see if the answer was different. Um, but this was very interesting coming from someone who's probably about 70 now, who was on the, on the street for years, um, saying it really boils down to integrity and trust. And so Porso says, you know, Ethical finance professionals, if you're gonna be ethical, you gotta ask questions. And they include, you know, would I make it, consistency? Am I being accountable? Am I being rational? And am I being um, equitable? Would I want everyone to be treated this way? So basic ethics stuff, even if you take any kind of ethics, you'll learn this stuff. There's, a, there's a, also another professional um, ethicist by the name of Marianne Jennings who wrote a long essay last year on the history of financial crises and the ethics behind them. And it's very interesting because she goes through the tulip crisis uh, in, in the Netherlands in the, in the 18th century, and she goes through things in the 19th century and so forth, different parts of the country. And she gives a lot of detail, and then she concludes, the fact patterns change for business, but the ethics do not. And she says, when agents in the economic realm do not ask themselves three simple questions before they make a transaction or make a decision, then we are in trouble. But they're always the same questions, she argues. Does this violate the law? That's the first question. Is this honest? Because sometimes something legal isn't necessarily honest, right? And what if I were on the other side? And she says, that's the one where you say, if I was having this done to me, would I say, that's not fair. You can't do that to me. She says, people who ask those questions are ethical professionals. It doesn't really matter what time or place or situation. So it's interesting how both my friend from Fordham, from Wall Street, and this literature actually sees ethics as fairly simple in a certain way. She says, when analysts depart from these questions, complex issues get resolved through a thicket of codes, laws, and regulations, which is what everybody cried for after the crisis. We need more regulations, which were hard as heck to get through, right? Dodd-Frank and so forth, that encourage further interpretations and exceptions and cloud ethical judgment. So it's interesting, she's almost down on saying, don't make more rules, make sure people are asking these questions. Then you might still need a new rule. 
but the most important thing is asking those questions. So for business ethicists, good financial markets require three things. Good apples, good barrels, and a good core. Ethical individuals, effective regulations and laws, and integrity in leadership, culture, policies, and practices, and a culture of integrity. We'll come back to that. Now I want to turn to um, Catholic social thought. What a shift, right? We go from Wall Street to these old guys wearing white robes. Kind of weird, really. Um, but Catholic social thought is a very fascinating and I think one of the most um, appealing things that has come out of the Roman Catholic Church um, over the past century. And it basically is, boils down to the church saying, we have to care about the actual economic situation of people who are suffering in the world. We can't stand by and let the Karl Marxes and the Milton Friedmans and the, and the Adam Smiths um, be the only ones to talk about ethics in the marketplace. We have something to say about that. Um, and so there's principles, and I guess I would, I would imagine you've learned about them or heard about them many times. These are gleaned from many, many documents, lots of conversations and so forth, and lots of scholarship. The God-given dignity of every person. Respect for embodied life from womb to tomb. Um, a notion of the common good. We're social beings, we're not just individual atoms. Um, a realism about fallibility and sin. Um, that's a really important one, I think. You know, um, this is not a la-di-da, oh, you know, like everything's beautiful, let's all get along type of, type of viewpoint. It says, no, people can be really evil. And we need, to, we need to control over that in others and in ourselves. And that's a value that you get from looking at Catholic social thought. Um, and notion, no, a notion not only are there, that are there common goods, but there are common bads. There are structures of sin that we need to be aware of and resist and work against. And it's very difficult. What's the antidote? We'll come back to this. Solidarity and a preferential option for the poor and the vulnerable. So there are actually practical uh, reactions. So what am I supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to have a certain kind of attitude. You're supposed to put the common good before your own individual gain. And you're supposed to particularly look at who's most vulnerable in the situation. And if you do make that your rule of thumb, besides the three questions that Jennings wants you to ask, you're going to be pretty. Uh, you're you're going to have pretty good rudder for thinking about what to do in a lot of these complicated situations, and then a notion of justice as empowerment and participation. It's a very activist view of the human person, engaged view of the human person. Justice isn't me just getting stuff from somewhere. Justice is me being engaged and, and using my talents and my free choice in in the market and in policy and so forth. Two important things in the Catholic social view because they have that classical view of the economy and they believe it in a spiritual way that God created the earth's material resources to serve everybody. God created the material resources of the world to serve everybody. So in a certain way, ownership comes second. First thing is these resources are there to serve everybody. That means you can acquire material goods and you can own material goods, but they are not absolute or unlimited rights, particularly when some people ha are going without. Now, honestly, that's an incredibly anti-American viewpoint to say that you know, you're limited in what you can own when some people don't have enough. You know, my first reaction as an American is, damn it, this is my money. You, know, you don't tell me I have limited, that's my house. You know, it's an absolute right in my mind, in my culture, right? Uh, this actually challenges that, you know, so much so that someone like Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century said, if you're poor and you don't have food and somebody next door in your, has a lot of food in their house and you, go to and you steal that food, should you be put in jail? Is it a sin? No and no, because the food was there originally for everybody. So that's kind of radical. It isn't kind of, it is radical. Um, 
The second key thing that you find in modern Catholic social thought is an emphasis on the dignity of work and the rights of workers to livelihood. So this, again, this isn't the Catholic view that says, I'm gonna sit here and everybody should feed me. No, I don't flourish unless I have good work. And I should have good work, and when I do good work, I should be able to gain sufficiency, enough security, I shouldn't be scared that I'm gonna to starve tomorrow, or if I get sick, status. I'm treated like a human being. I have something to contribute. I'm not just a tool or a cog through my work. And these are very deep themes that come up again and again in Catholic thought. The work of Dan Finn, if you're not, if you're not familiar with him, um, uh, 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 who's an economist and an ethicist at St. John's Collegeville, has great stuff about this stuff if you want to read more, Daniel Finn. So in dialogue with business ethics, so Catholic social thought would say, this is great, Barbara Porso and Jennings and Dodson, we like what you're doing, you know, you know business, we don't, you know the economy, we don't. But along with what the business ethicists are doing, Catholic social thought has a wider and a deeper lens that I think gives resources or some new base points that we could use for discerning economically just financial practices and policies. And by that I mean, if you want a toolbox for negotiating the complicated things you have to decide in the boardroom or as when you're a manager or whatever you're doing out there in the work world. These are great tools to have in your toolbox as you're sort of checking off like how do I, where's my moral barometer, barometer here? What, do, what should I be paying attention to? And the first one, interestingly, is intelligibility. So is what I'm going to do or is the practice or policy or product that I am producing understandable to me and to the people who are using it or engaging it. Um, this tradition very much believes in asking the questions to find out what's true, seeking reasonable understanding. And of course, the little monkeys there suggest what happened during, in the run-up to the crisis. People didn't understand what the products were doing. Things got more and more opaque because they were stratified and cut, cut up and put into bundles and so forth and so on to the point where even the people at the higher levels didn't know what kind of integrity these loans had. The complexity and the opacity and the inability for people to understand or articulate them, that's a warning signal. That's a warning signal because people deserve to be able to understand what it is they're buying, selling, owning, et cetera. Um, those of us who saw our pensions, for example, take a terrible hit, you know, uh, I realized I didn't understand anything about that. I just expected the money to keep going up. I didn't know what was going on. Well, that was a failure on my part of intelligibility that I should have been a little more aware, right? But it goes through the whole system. A second base point, agency and accountability. Financial markets are not simply robotic mechanisms. You know, something, well, what's the market gonna do? I don't know what the market's gonna do. Oh, you know, like we can't help, the market's in a bad mood or whatever, you know, people treat it like it's its own thing and it's really out there apart from anybody or anything. Or we even talk about the invisible hand of the market, right? It's, it's something way beyond any of us. Now, I don't wanna deny that there's some use to that kind of metaphor, but the key point here is, Markets are complex sets of relationships that are produced and affected by human agents. It's not like your powerlessness. You're not just in the weather when you're in the market. These things have been set up by people. They can be changed by people, okay? And so this idea of responsibility and agency is key. A third one, the word may be weird, but the point is incredibly important, and it's perfect for today on March 25th, the Feast of the Annunciation, um, when Mary says yes to God becoming incarnate. Um, what does incarnation mean? Who knows? Embodied, Embodied embodiment, yeah, Car carne, right? You see the meat right in the flesh in there, right? Yes, it means embodiment. 
Christians believe that God became incarnate in this world and thereby blessed everything that's embodied, thereby is concerned with everything that is embodied. So what does that have to do with financial markets? Economic processes, however complex, must remain excuse me, anchored in and responsible to the embodied persons, local communities, and particular cultures on whom they depend and who they influence, meaning that the young woman who's sitting down below in that picture, who's sewing your shirt and mine, you know, or your t-shirt and, or, or my slacks that I'll never meet, okay? However we set up that economic system, it has to be responsible to her as well as me. The actual people on the ground who are being affected or who, and on, who these, on whom these large, ethereal, complex transactions really depend, right? Not just because they're sh making the shirts, but when they go home at night, they have bodies too, these, these Wall Street bankers. <laughs> and they need to be taken care of, and they need to get food from somewhere, and they need to get clothing from somewhere. And the people who provide that work uh, need to be accounted for and, 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 and addressed as however it is we're setting up these financial markets and, and looking at the influence of them. How are the people on the ground being affected? Um, parentheses. So if I'm Sarah Lee and I'm being told, cut that plant right here and move it over to Mexico because you're going to make your cheesecakes cheaper there and therefore you're going to end up with a better bottom line. Uh, this view would say, what's going to happen to the people who've worked in New Jersey in that plant for 25 or 30 years? Is that my concern at all? Not in the finance paradigm it isn't, but in this provisioning paradigm, this more fulsome view of the economy, said, well of course that's part of what we need to care about. But one pulls against the other, you see that? Okay, oops, oh, geez, ah, okay, I think we're in the next, yeah, four, realism and, re and re resistance to systemic or structural sin. This thing is like going crazy. Oh, this is just me saying that we have to pay attention to the actual people, that's just what that slide was about. You know, in Gaudium et Spes in, in, in 1965, we talked about the griefs, the anguish, the hopes, and the joys of everybody in the world are shared by the followers of Jesus. And so if we really care about all those people, we can't just ignore them when we look at how we, when we proceed in our economic or financial lives. So here's structural sin. Um, there's a lot on here, but I just want to point out this is John Paul II in 1987 talking about structures that come from personal decisions. It's always accountability. But we can create structures that grow and increase and build common bads versus common goods. Okay? Um, and it can be anything from you start to litter, I start to litter, and then the whole street becomes full of crap. And then it's very hard to change that because nobody wants to pick it up, and it just gets worse and worse. Different parts of Philly, I'm sure you have this, and so forth. That's a structure of sin. Not because people are evil, horrible people, but because people are being wrongly related to each other, and, and it creates something very difficult to change. What causes these structure, or what motivates these people to be involved in these negative structures? He says, well, there are two things that almost always come up. And he says, an all-consuming desire for profit, profit and a thirst for power. Thirst for profit, thirst for power. He says, you could, they're different, but they're almost always together. And you know, that's a very simple statement and it's a very true statement if you look at many, many situations in the world. And so he says, I'm not against Wall Street, but I am against the idolization of making money. You know what the word idolization means? Making it the thing above all other things. Whenever you make the thing above all other things, anything other than the flourishing of human beings in relationship to God, then you're idolizing. 
So he says, we've created new idols. The worship of the calf has found a heartless image in the cult of money and the dictatorship of an economy, which is faceless and lacking in any truly humane goal. This drives the Wall Street Journal nuts when he talks like this, right? Because he's so down on capitalism. He's so down on free markets. Doesn't he realize how much good comes from free markets? I think his answer back is, yes, of course I do. And he does say it elsewhere. But I'm saying we have to look at the places where it's hurting people and we have to deal with that. A fifth base point, see we're gonna have a whole toolbox here, I've got eight of them, but we're almost done. Subsidiarity and participation. Power ought to be dispersed widely in economic and social interactions with participation and voice by all stakeholders. This is easier said than done in business, um, but it's a, it's a good rule to go by, to say, um, well, are we bringing in and giving voice to the people who are gonna be affected by this or who are contributing to this and so forth? So there's a lot of sense of on the ground power. There's a lot of emphasis on democratic participation in this Catholic tradition, uh, on joining together in groups to create more power. And our culture today, I think, and our um, consumer society pushes against that. Stay home play on a screen, maybe do something through a screen, right? You know, might, might, might crowdsource something or you know, sign a petition and so forth. But make sure, how do you become active and empowered in today's culture? This is the most important one. I was interested that you said that I talk about it a lot, I do. Um, this is articulated by John Paul II as well. The notion of solidarity as a fact as a virtue, as a moral virtue and a Christian virtue. What is solidarity? It's three things, at least two things. It's recognizing that we are interdependent. That's the other thing these Wall Streeters were talking about at lunch yesterday. Oh my God, don't think, if you're gonna do something in China and think no one's gonna know about it, they're gonna know about it in London. Everything is so interconnected now. We are so interconnected in the, in the snap of a finger. The deep interconnections, but not just through the internet or through finance, but as human beings, the woman who sewed that shirt is connected to me. And I somehow need to acknowledge that. So the first is just a fact. You can deny it, but it's a fact. That, that's what solidarity means, just a fact. The second thing is as a virtue is when you recognize that fact. I say, okay, I see it and I wanna be responsible to it, even though I'll never perfectly be responsible, but at least I wanna to try to be responsible to my interconnections with other people. And then if you're a Christian, the Pope ends up saying, well, you can think of it in a Christian way. It's about what, what, loving your neighbor. You know, it's about recognizing that everyone is a child of God, and so of course I'm connected, and of course I have responsibilities. So as a fact, as a virtue, as a Christian virtue. This is almost a, you know, a through line for um, how to live a Christian life in the academic and business world, as well as other places today. Practicing solidarity means you're gonna serve the common good, not just your own individual interests. And the Pope says this, so fascinating to me. This is an antidote to structural sin. This is an antidote. If you wanna know what to do about sinful structures, think about what it would mean to do solidarity in that situation. How would I deal with the littered street? What would I do? Maybe I'd start to talk to my neighbors and say, hey, I'm gonna go outside and pick up garbage on Saturday morning. And they'd look at me like I was nuts, you know. But you know, maybe one or two would come with me and I'd start to talk to them. And I would actually think about what it means to live out that, inter that inter interdependence. 
Studies show, this is going back to the business ethicist, that leadership really influences business's ethical culture and regulatory compliance. What the leader does makes a big difference. That's as the little, little pegs there are supposed to be suggesting. Um, from the Catholic point of view, whoops, um, leadership is seen in terms not of going out and being the individual ahead, but of being one who serves and one who actually models solidarity. So again, wherever you're a leader, you have an opportunity to model that for other people and have a, quite a big influence, the research shows. Solidarity also requires, and this is really hard in business and economics, a preferential option, whoops, my slide slid there, for the concern for the poor, the vulnerable, and the marginalized. Thinking not just of people in general, but of particularly of the people who are suffering the most. And how do I, how do I live responsibly in relationship to those people? Um, and that's hard. Um, I remember someone in a business, in an economic ethics class who had run a business and we were reading this stuff saying, you know, I can go to a business, I can go to work and say I'm going to care about the option for the vulnerable, but I don't have any idea how I'm supposed to do that, right? And so I think that's where the challenge comes. These are tools, they're starting points, and then how do you, how do you embody those? How do you actually act those out? Sustainability is another link, now linked to solidarity. Uh, because if you're concerned about the vulnerable, you've got to be concerned about the vulnerable earth in this day and age. Um, so solidarity and sustainability for Catholic thought go hand in hand. So these are eight Catholic things. They're not just Catholic things, um, but they are Catholic things that um, are part of the toolbox that you can use, I think, when you're thinking about how to do good finance. So this is the Pope talking about solidarity, this, the present Pope. The word solidarity refers to something more than a few sporadic acts of generosity. Excuse me, it's a habit, it's a habit. Um, it presumes the creation of a new mindset and thinks in terms, we have about three minutes left, thinks in terms of a community and the priority of life of, of all over the appropriation of goods by a few. It means working to eliminate the structural causes of poverty, promote the de development of the poor, as well as the small daily acts of solidarity in meeting the real needs we encounter. I really like that because it's not all about like changing the world, you know, like the whole structure of the world, but it's, it's about, yeah, you deal with the guy on the street and your neighbor, but you also think about these larger issues and try to contribute to those as well. So it's a whole way of thinking and living. So for Catholic social thought, and I put two stars there because it isn't just Catholic social thought who thinks about all this stuff. Um, there's lots and lots of people in economics and business and also in other religious uh, communities and so forth. Good financial markets must serve the common good. In other words, in an inclusive way. And honor the dignity and foster the well-being of every person and community that finance affects. Again, this is the, our present Pope saying, it's really important that the economic sector has a huge place in, in promoting an inclusive approach that takes into consideration the dignity of every human person and the common good. So when you do business this way or you do finance this way, the Pope says it's a noble vocation. It's a noble vocation that serves economies, inclusive provisioning purposes. Uh, I'll just end with a, I think I'm ending. Oh yeah, almost ending. We <laughs> We must praise the steps being taken today to improve people's welfare and recognize the fundamental role that modern business activity has had in bringing about these changes. Business is in fact a vocation and a noble vocation, providing that those engaged in it see themselves as challenged by a greater meaning in life, a bigger picture, a deeper lens. It isn't just about the finance paradigm. Such men and women are able to serve more effectively the common good and to make the goods of this world more accessible to all, which is what God intends, for more people to have enough, for everybody to have enough. 
So just to conclude, fostering sustainable economies and financial markets that support the well-being of everybody, it's not easy. <laughs> it's a long haul, complicated, arduous, and maybe even exhilarating work. It's a labor of love to try to care about and do something about this stuff. And part of our human and spiritual callings, and the question is how do we play our parts? Thank you. That's a great question. And you know we're waiting for the Pope to come out with an encyclical on, the, on, on ecology. It should come out. We don't know. Any time now it's going to come out. Um, um, the answer is both. Um, and I would say two things. Historically, Catholics have been late to the party in terms of speaking out strongly about ecological issues in the 20 and 21st century. It was only in about the 80s that official t statements began to come out and so forth, well behind a lot of other religious communities. Um, and part of it, I think, is because Catholic social thought has been so people-focused, you know, the, the, the working poor, the poor, and so forth. And so the shift I've seen happen since the 80s is to something you might call eco-justice. In other words, you won't have justice for people unless you have justice for the earth and so forth. And, but now we're at a point where, where the, both of the values are spoken of. But let me back up and speak historically and say, if you look at scripture, if you look at the early church, if you look at Thomas Aquinas, the value of the world and the cosmos in and of itself, if you look at the Psalms, it's there in the Christian tradition, right? The earth is full of the goodness of God and so forth and so And that has nothing to do with human beings. So we have a huge trove of resources in the tradition that have been there, but we just forgot about them and didn't put them together with the ecological crisis. So the value of the earth in and of itself is right there in our tradition. Um, and even the notion that all reality, all of creation has vestigia dei, has, part, has little, little hints of God in it, right? And so if you cross off a species, you've crossed off some evidence of God in the world. My colleague Elizabeth Johnson's new book called Ask the Beasts is on exactly this issue, Darwin and the God of Love, but she does a lot about ecological issues. So that's a really long answer to your question. But yes, thankfully, we're, we're, I think we're on the right track here. It'd be interesting to see what the Pope says. Oh, he's, yeah, he's, yes, did you see the, yes, go ahead. Okay, yeah. I heard that the Pope has it now and he's yes, and reading the through it. it yeah. And Cardinal Turkson, who is the head of the, he's from Africa and he's the, Ghana? Is he, he's the head of the Pontifical Institute on Peace and Justice. And he uh, gave a, a, a speech not that long ago in Ireland. You can look, you can Google it if you're interested in these issues, in which people think he pretty much gave an outline of what the Pope is probably going to say. Um, and it's really quite, it's going to be quite good, I think. 
Oh, he is. Oh, he's he, he's a wonderful Right. And again, like what do these documents do? These are documents coming out of Rome, right? And so they might not do anything, but hopefully what they do is draw some attention of people who on the ground can say, well, how, you know, this gives me some, some muscle, some muster to sort of say in my own parish or my own community or my own diocese, what are we doing about this? Or what can I do in my, so uh, the paper it's written on isn't worth much unless you know, it becomes received and connected to uh, what's going on on the ground or, and on a good day, and I think a lot of it has come up from the ground. Yes, thank you. You mentioned the Alan Reese hand, and then uh, sometime later you talked about the invisible hand. And I'm, I'm just remembering that before the economy collapsed, years back, uh, he talked about the, uh, the market being self-corrected. Mm -hmm. It's another way of saying the invisible hand. Mm -hmm. Yes, he did. So we have to worry. Alan will take care of right. the economy and the financial markets and so on. Okay. So apparently he didn't really know what he was doing. Well, or he thought he knew and he didn't, right? Both, right? Um, you know, I mean, it's kind of like, yeah, trust me, trust me. You can trust me, I'm an expert, right? Can you trust the market? Yes, that's exactly right. Now, you know, it's, that's why this is complicated, in my opinion, because you, there is a way in which the market does self-correct. In other words, you know, if there's, um, in Econ 101, right, there's too much corn, and so the price goes down, and so people produce less corn. So you, you can say the market does self-correct in some ways, shapes, and forms, but when you've got systematic distortions going on in the way the derivatives are being put together and sold and, and covered up and so forth and so on, um, then the market is going to create patterns that get worse and worse and worse and worse, right? And that's part of what happened. Yeah. But, and the other thing is, look how little accountability there's been. How little accountability there's been for the people who really should have been held accountable, you know, both governmentally and uh, in the business world, you know. Um, it's interesting. I don't know what else to say besides that. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, even the invisible hand, it's not a useless metaphor, you know. Um, but it's one thing to say in my little town or in my dorm, you know, we're all going to sort of treat each other okay because you're not going to screw me because I don't want. That's one thing. But to say when you're working at these very, very arcane levels, um, I think Dodson's thing is, is really interesting about how the, the ethics kind of strips out because it's really, I'm not really dealing with people in my own mind. I'm dealing with money. I'm just trying to make money, right? Yes. Yeah, how do you deal with banks that are too big to fail, especially from an ethical perspective? You're probably working at one of these banks that I know I'm too big to fail. I'm probably not going to be as ethical because I know what's going to happen to me. That's a, you're making a really good point. And the guy from Harvard Business Review, you might enjoy reading that article. That's one of the points he makes about uh, the difficulty with the financial sector. When I gave you that statistic about how the top, the biggest banks have assets that are at like 55% of the GDP uh, compared to our GDP, he was trying to make a point about power, but he was also saying because they're so big, the government isn't going to let them fail, which precisely does create what Barbara Porso would say opportunity for corruption because I know I'm going to be bailed out. And I actually, one of our donors um, at, at Fordham um, um, is, is somebody, and I'm sure there's a lot of other people like this, you know, who when everything started to collapse, 
immediately knew enough to buy in certain places because they, they, they bet that the government was gonna bail them out. And so they made millions off of the bet that these guys are too big to fail. And they came in right when everything was going down, when you shouldn't have bought it all. And they made off like, so those are regulatory problems, right? Because, it, because Porso's right, you know, people are gonna be tempted to take advantage of the system because as, as much as we like people to have good character, um, you have to also create um, boundaries around that stuff, right? Yeah, so I don't know, there needs to be regulation that doesn't let what? That breaks up some of these big banks, I would think. And who's gonna let that happen? <laughs> the, po the political scientists will clear that up for us. Yes. Yes, yes, right. Mm-hmm. The person who had that job is now going to suffer. Mm-hmm. On the other side of the equation, the person who gets the job is going to be much better off than mm -hmm. he was. Mm-hmm. Have you thought about how you reason your way through that Because most of the time when we have these discussions right. about oh, this poor, you know, the poor American economy is getting hurt, right. people here are hurt. But there's always you know, the other half of the story. Right. No. And I think from the Catholic social perspective, it's the more global perspective, right? Because the, you know, the person you care about isn't just in the United States. And so when you start to ask, how would you take a Catholic social perspective on that precise question? I think it has to be, uh, it has to be finely grained in that saying, is it good for people to get low paid jobs in country X when they didn't have them before? Um, to what extent does, uh, does uh, you know, ought I be happy? Here I am in the United States, my brother and sister in Mexico now has, now has a job and so forth. So I don't have an easy answer to that, but I think that the, 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 um, the parameter for thinking about the good economy, and this is something the popes have been saying for the last few encyclicals, is, has gotta be global and international. It can't just be within my group. At the very same time, subsidiarity would say, well, of course I'm gonna care about my group. You know, I want people to flourish in my country, right? So am I doing something wrong if I buy made in the USA versus made in Mexico because I'm actually supporting people who probably aren't that poor compared to people who are poorer over there? That's, what, that's a question you're raising. We right? Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. But there's also, you know, we have the right to flourish within our own group. But it, it's, a, it's a tough one and I think there's two things, you know, you've got the critical lens that needs to be put on the question that says, oh, people are a lot better off, you know, in Bangladesh in that, in that garment factory because at least they had a job, right? So there's a lot of abuses and things we need to look at, but I take your point. I mean, I think we have to, we have to also- and my, and my question is not, you know, what's the answer, but it, 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 have you run across a way of thinking about that? that the globalization thing is one way. Right. But it doesn't solve the problem. Right, it doesn't solve the problem, yeah. right, right. Right, right, and I think another way of thinking about it, though, is also to say how do how do um, how well labor movement issues. You know, in other words, what 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 if there were an international labor movement that would actually be supporting workers in these different situations? I mean, that's that's a pipe. Well, it's at least a dream at this point. Right. It's <laughs> well, right, right, but but the need for something like that, a social justice labor movement that says, you know, how do we really work for workers' rights? I mean, yeah, was there a hundred years ago and it kind of gone away, but but uh, um, anyway, no, I'll send you something if I come across it though.
We can talk afterwards. Thank you for coming.